From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The comedy scene in the Cape Fear region is growing. That's partly thanks to the work of the Dead Crow Comedy Club and Daredevil Improv, and it's partly simple math. As southeastern North Carolina sees its population expand, some of these transplants are turning out to be comedians. The professional kind, that is. For New York City and touring comedian Nancy Witter, it was the pandemic that ignited her desire to move here. We'll hear more about her career in New York and how she got started in comedy. But first, let's listen to this clip of her from Nick Mom Night Out. I have two children, Annie and Michael. And I'm going to say by now, boy, they've got to be in their 20s. And I tell you, I love them. They're like family. (laughs) But they're totally the opposite. My daughter, Annie, is a DJ, a waitress. She's got tattoos, piercings, loves any job that doesn't offer health insurance. (laughs) My son, Michael, just got his doctorate in physical therapy. I call him Dudley Do-Right, though, because every time he comes home, he always wants to show me how much better he is than she is. So he'll come home, they'll go, Mom, I just want you to know I emptied the dishwasher. I put away the laundry. I got a kitten out of a tree. I walked an old lady across the street and I'm working on a cure for diabetes. (laughs) How's Annie? Now you see, he thinks I'm gonna like him more than her, but you see, I don't care because I hate them both. (laughs) But equally. Equally. They're very ungrateful, very ungrateful. My daughter Annie comes out to the house. I go, Annie, how do you go from the DVR back to the TV? And she goes, I have to teach you everything. I had to teach you how to use your cell phone. Then I had to teach you how to use the computer. Now I have to teach you how to use the TV. I said, really? I taught you how to walk, talk, and use the toilet. I think I win. Comedian Nancy Witter on Nick Mom Night Out. She was one of five finalists on Nick at Night's search for the funniest mom in America. Nancy started performing stand-up comedy at Don't Tell Mama in New York City, very well-known, well-loved cabaret where she was a regular for over a decade. She's won four New York City Mac Awards for Outstanding Comedian. She's the author of the book Who's Better Than Me? A Guide to Living Happily Ever After. She's toured the country in sold-out theaters, played Las Vegas and Atlantic City. She's appeared on the Rachel Ray Show. She was crowned Ms. Senior New York in 2019. And thanks to the pandemic, (laughs) was the longest reigning queen. (laughs) She also happens to be a life coach, motivational speaker, and comedy coach and teacher. Nancy Witter, welcome to Coastline. Oh, thank you, Rachel. How fun. (laughs) Boy, that was, boy, I almost lost the will to live through that. Exhausting. <clears throat> that's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of comedy. Those are a lot of accomplishments in all seriousness. But I have a lot of years. 
<laughs> Why did you move here to Wilmington, the Wilmington area? So it was around the pandemic. Um, I was really, um, for many years, uh, almost 15 years, I played um, at Don't Tell Mamas and other venues, Gotham, Carolines, whatever, in the in New York City. and The big comedy clubs. The big comedy clubs. But then, and I traveled <clears throat> a little bit, but then I started traveling a lot. Once I got, once I wrote the book and I started giving funny motivational speeches and uh, at Nick at Night, I teamed up with two other women, Sherry Davey and Karen Morgan, and we toured the country for five years doing theaters. So once you start doing that, it's, it's hard to go back to comedy clubs. So I was traveling more. And I thought, I don't really have to be that close to New York. But during the pandemic, um, I came down here to visit my sister. And I just said, I'm done. I am just done. I just You just know when it's time. I, you just I, wanted to live in an easier place. Easier place. And um, it was like in May of the pandemic. So everything was more open here. I love the vibe. And I said, at that time, I would rather have lived in New York and visited here, which I did for years because my sister lived here. And instead, I said, no, I'd rather live there and visit New York. So Friday, I'm flying back to New York. So I fly back to New York quite frequently. Um, but that's a better, it's a better fit. And at my agent for where I am in my life right now. But I, I just love it. I, I, I love it here. I love the comedy scene here. I love... And we're going to talk about mm-hmm. what you're doing at Dead Crow mm-hmm. and with Daredevil Improv. But tell me, for what is the difference between playing a comedy club where you're you're the, let's say, headliner mm-hmm. doing a stand-up comedy show and the kinds of theater shows that you were doing around the country with the other women? I think it's probably the age and the audience and the intent of the audience when they go in. So generally at a, at a comedy club, it's a it's a, a raucous night out. People are having dinner and they're going to go to a comedy club and they get interfaced and it's really – it's like a party. It's like a, it's like a big party and it can get loud and rowdy and whatever. Um, and you can be – in my opinion, you can be a, a, lot, a lot more freer with your words and your subject matter and you can really have a raucous good time. Um, when you're in a theater, it is – Generally, an older audience. Generally, um, it, it's it, it's a resounding. For me, it's a it's it's a level up. So I'm not quite as liberal with my words. There's no back and forth. There's you know I'm not talking about heckling. I'm talking about even recognizing people because you're sort of in the dark. It's like a one act play. So when you go out, you're being funny. It's a script that you've written for yourself, and you go out. And you sell it, and it is for that moment in time, whether it's 45 minutes or an hour, that's just your one act play in front of you. That's what so I'm, it's really a different art form it is. Well, from being in a stand-up comedy club. Correct. It's like a Netflix special, except you're on a stage, and it's not on Netflix. That's the difference. But it, it's, it's similar. It's just that's what they are. They're filmed in a theater, all of those specials, HBO specials and whatever. And you see them, they're, that's where they're filmed. They're filmed in a theater. They're not filmed in a comedy club with waitresses coming by and slinging drinks. So it's just a different, um, it's usually a different age group. It's a different vibe. It's a different vibe from being in a big, you know, Madison Square Garden uh, concert compared to being at a brewery and listening to a band that you really love. You know, it's just yeah. a different different way of communicating, I think. 
So you've you've been doing comedy for a while, and you're you're teaching it now. But how has comedy itself changed since the time you started versus how it is now? For example, I'm thinking specifically about being a woman in that field because there was a time many many moons ago mm-hmm. when people didn't really think women were funny. Right. Well, I think part of that came from the art form itself. Comedy is an aggressive art form. It's not a genteel, um, you know, easy, lightly spoken kind of uh, speaking where you are just up there just being delightful. You're up there with a point of view, with your opinion, with what you think is funny, crafting it in a way that you think other people will think it's funny, and then you're selling it. And for a long time, men would hit taboo subjects, even if they weren't blatant. In other words, like on TV, it had TV ready. But when women did the same thing, it was off-putting to men and could be off-putting to to women, where they would look at someone like a Joan Rivers. Now, most people, including myself, think she was a genius and hilarious. But there was a section of the population that thought it was very unladylike and that only men should really talk like that. It's not appealing to see women. And I don't think that that's necessarily changed a, a whole lot. I think I think women just because they're they're different. If they come at a certain um, subject matter, it can just it, they're just a different standard. So women are completely funny. I love female comics more than male comics because I think that they pick different subject matters. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you talk about it, it requires you as a woman to be a certain amount of assertive, aggressive, have a point of view. But you also don't think that going some of the, I don't want to say cheaper places, but um, there's you've talked to younger female comedians mm-hmm. about why they're getting blue or, right. you know, why they're... Um, being crude when perhaps they don't have to be. What's what's the line for you? Is it is that a moral line for you, or is it something absolutely else? Not, absolutely not. It's a funny, it's a funny line. So I sometimes see female comics trying to play with the big dogs, and if if they're watching aggressive male uh, comedians being a little blue, uh, they they just get more leeway. They just do. It's just the way that just the way humans are. And when a woman gets up there and tries to be equally as blue, the men get the men get mad because they think that's our territory, and the women think, you know, I, I, it's it, that's disgusting, whatever it might be if they're being blue. And I know many blue female comics that are hilarious, but if you're going to be blue, you have to be really funny. You yeah. have to be really, 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 really funny. If you're not then it's just sort of low-hanging fruit. And if they follow the male, you know, template, they're they're not going to fail. Because I always say there are millions, millions of things that you can talk about, millions of topics, millions of funny things out there that you can sit down and and write about that that is just you, that is your point of view, that's you. And it doesn't have to be blue. It also doesn't have to be squeaky clean either. But it has 
to be funny. It has to be unique. It has to be witty that people go, I never would have thought of that. That's such an interesting thing. I never saw that coming. That is such a funny way to look at something so simple. And that could include sex. It could include drugs. But it also could include emptying the dishwasher, getting your car fixed. It could be a TV show. It could be literally anything. And when I teach comedy and I'm um, teaching a writing workshop at Dead Crow, and in those workshops, it's all exploring. What can you write about? And they're writing exercises. I go, good comedy comes from good writing, and good writing comes from great editing. And you're writing a script, and you should be able to highlight where that punches. And if you're just going to get on stage and talk like you do in the basement with your girlfriends or, or your guy friends and think that's going to translate on stage, it's not. Who takes your workshops locally? Are these all, are these comedians who are already kind of working at it? Do you have a range? Are you getting people who just want some therapy and figure it's a good way to do it? Or what, it's who a, takes t- It's a little bit of a mix, and we've only had a few so far. Um, but the people who take my comedy class always surprise me. There are people that have never done comedy before. Their ages are typically between 30 and 50. And when I, I always ask, why are you taking this? And they are like, either I've always wanted to do it or I always thought I was funny and always was just too afraid to try it. And I said, but I'm, and what I do is give them a supportive place and Dead Crow is such a supportive. They have an open mic on Thursday nights that gets it's huge, like 30, 40 comics there. Um, so I don't typically, I haven't yet gotten the local comedians that are up there to take a writing class, and that may change because it's really for writing. Um, but I get people that are trying to explore it, and they go, I just wanted to see if I could write something funny. And so some, as a professional comedian, do you ever get somebody in your class and you just think, oh, they're just not, they're not funny. They shouldn't be in this class. Or what, what do you, mm-hmm. how do I, you deal with that? Everyone has their story. I'm not their comedy writer. I'm not there to do it. I am there to bring out the best in them. For, the, for some people, it's a one and done. They just want to get on stage. It is the most thrilling night for those people, bar none. People come, and the audience, I love those shows because the audience wants them to win. Yeah. No one wants to, and, you know, you say these are all new people. Mo, the thing I hear the most is, is that really your first time on stage for the people that perform? It's their story. It's their thing. I tell them what to look for, how to find it, but I don't cook it. They cook it and they serve it. I just help them, guide them for what they should be looking for and doing. What are some of the really common stumbling blocks that you see in new comedians or people who are just trying this out? Are there, are there like one or two very typical mistakes that people often start out with? Yes. Um, I think probably um, the first is, um, I've always said this, I, I hate it when people bring notes on stage, and I understand it. Everyone that does comedy wants to bring notes on stage, but I said you can't, because when you do, it's like watching the magician put the rabbit in the hat, and then five <laughs> minutes later, take it out and go, ah, about that? <laughs> 
the thing that makes comedy funny is people think it's just coming off the top of your head and it's conversational and you're up there. And when they're like, they look and they go, so what else am I going to talk about? I go, oh, you got to be prepared. You have to memorize this. You have to know what you're saying. You got to sell it. You're up there selling. You're selling what you wrote. So have you ever had a moment then when you've been on stage and you're on a roll, it's gone really well, and you get to the end of the laugh and it's time to go into the next bit and you have no idea where you, where to go? Yes, ma'am. What do you do? Well, it depends. I, back in the day, I used to be like, huh? Yeah, so anyway. Oh, boy. Um, uh, what was I seeing? Uh, but now, because I've been doing this for so long— I just say to myself, oh, oh I, 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 what was that? I, uh, and so I just say, just do another bit. So I just do another bit. And so you it, have enough bits. I have then. enough that I just pull something else out. Because I, I did it like two, two weeks ago at the show. And then as soon as I was in the middle of that, it was like, oh, I know what it was. All right, so when I get done with this. So as people are laughing, I'm thinking, I have to do this. I'm going to go back and circle around, put that in there. And then I do that. But I've, I know these bits so well. And I always use this analogy. It's like a song. It's like a song. As a matter of fact, I can hear someone say something and I go, that reminds me of something. What does that remind me of? And in my head it goes, da, 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 da. oh, it's that bit I did where I went, blah, 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 blah. I always say to my students, if you couldn't hear words and you just heard a comic, it would be rhythmic. It would sound like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. And that's why Mel Brooks always has music. It, comedy, Frank Sinatra always worked with Don Rickles because comedy, they would say it's timing, which it is, but it's more, it's rhythm. So every word matters and how you craft it. So that punch goes, bum, bum, bam. There are certain words that are funnier than other words. You want the right amount of sil, and you can hear it. You can, when you've done it long enough, so it's not just, talking into a mic about funny things. It's crafting it. You're listening to Coastline. I'm talking with comedian Nancy Witter, who is a professional touring comedian and also teaches comedy writing at Dead Crow Comedy Club with Daredevil Improv. You, I, you're also a life coach? They're, they're all kind of the same. They're all kind of the same. That actually same makes church, sense. Same church, different pew. They have a goal, and so whether it's someone um, I'm coaching to do in their career, and now I do more comedy coaching than anything else, helping them with their writing. Again, I don't write for them. I, I know how to squeeze it out of them. That's, I think this is probably the more satisfying part of my career now. I'm going to be 67, so I'm not up and coming. I've, like, been there, done that, and... Now, I love performing more than anything, and I love touring and doing that stuff. But mentoring and helping these guys, because I can watch them on stage and go, if they would ask me, I could help them. Right. I know exactly what they're doing, why that's, that bit's not working, or what they need to work on, or what they need to discover. So for me, life coaching was similar to this. What is your goal? How are you going to get there? Here are the tools you need. But it's they have to do the work. So what about, you might have somebody who's a really good comedy writer, mm-hmm. but 
they can't really deliver it. Th- those Correct. seem like they could be two different skill sets. One hundred percent, Rachel. So, so how do you how do you help someone with delivery on stage presence? They, they usually they usually know a lot of really great comedy writers um, get on stage and they're not they're not terribly comfortable. They only are there to try their material. When they get better, then they can become writers for a comedian, and they enjoy that. Um, Conan O'Brien, you know, worked on The Simpsons, and he worked on Saturday Night Live. He wasn't a stand-up per se. I mean, he wasn't touring around the way Letterman was. Um, so some are really great uh, comedy writers, and some people are great performers. So I always say if you are a great performer or you have that thing – you can always buy material. You can have. You can hire someone to help you craft it. But if you can write it, but you can't perform it, that's difficult. Then you have to find. <laughs> you have to find a style <clears throat> that would work for you. You yeah. know, I'd have to say, well, you're not. You're not full of energy. So, um, you know, you, unless you're Stephen Wright, how are you gonna? How are you gonna manage this? And I said, you really. The more authentic you are, generally speaking, the better you are. And when you do comedy, generally, you are yourself, but exaggerated. It's you, but it's bigger. It's you on steroids. Yeah. You're a tiny bit of a different persona on stage, hopefully. You've also written a book, Who's Better Than Me? A Guide to Living Happily Ever After. And you tell me that you're in the process of writing another book. But first, tell me about this one. What what led to this? So um, I went to NYU and got my professional certification in life coaching. And I did that because I wanted to write. You can get a certification in life coaching from oh, NYU? Yeah. NYU. Okay. Yep. It was an 18-month course and a lot of neuroscience and things like that. And so I always knew that I wanted it as a credential to write a book to do motive, funny motivational speaking where I use my comedy with motivating women over 50 because I always thought those were the women that needed a pep talk more than anyone in the world that I know. And I said, I'm going to go talk to my people. So it's large print, you'll notice. And that's how I got recruited to do Senior Miss New York because I thought it would kind of go with my brand. But there's exercises in there because I said, you know, you're over 50. Figure it out. Now is the time. Now is the time you should be doing everything. So every chapter begins with a quote, and there's some exercises and stories. It's sort of a cautionary tale. It's like, I've done this, so don't do that. <laughs> so I can tell you already, I did it. That was a very bad mistake. And the next book I'm working on is a funny look at aging and tough aging things made funny. It's the goal. It's called We're Not Dead Yet, but We're Getting Closer. <laughs> now, Ms., we have to talk about this. Ms. Senior New York 2019, you had a crown and everything. I did. So a sash. Are, are, you, <laughs> are, you, are you a pageant person? Okay, when they asked me, like, somebody saw me at a show and said, have I got an opportunity for you? It's a show business opportunity. <laughs> I want to have lunch. The woman was like 89. Her name was Helen McCartney. <laughs> And I'm like, all right. So I went with my friend Carol, and it was after a show at the Katuit Theater, and she had been there. We go to lunch, and we go to her house. And it was like Norma Desmond. There were crowns and sashes everywhere. (laughs) I go, what is this? She goes, I think. I'm thinking she's thinking Netflix special, something on CBS, show business. I think you should. 
tryout to be Miss Senior New York. I did it. Then I became <laughs> Senior Miss America in 2005. I was a performer like you. You got moxie. Do it. I go, absolutely not. I'm a, first of all, I'm not allowed within 20 feet of a school. I don't know that I'm the one you're looking for for, for this, you know. And I ended up going to a meeting. This woman called me. She was delightful. Marlene Schuss, most fabulous woman. She goes, just come to the meeting. We have free coffee and free donuts. I said, they got me at donuts. They got me at donuts. Where am I not going to get free donuts? And I got wrapped into this. And, and you won. And you I won. won. And then I had to go to Senior Miss America in Atlantic City. There were women in their 80s and 90s. The most popular question they ask everyone is, ask me how old I am. 89. <laughs> but they didn't have to wear bathing suits. No, thank God. You can check out a comedy writing workshop at Dead Crow Comedy Club with Nancy Witter through Daredevil Improv. We'll have that link on our website. You're listening to Coastline. When we come back from this short break, comedian Cliff Cash joins us with some big news. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Comedian Cliff Cash tours nationally, but he's based in the Cape Fear region. Here he is performing in a comedy club in Utah. My mom, uh, it's just my mom now. Uh, my dad passed away. It was like one of the hardest things. If you've lost a parent, you know how hard it is. But it was really tough. And uh, we didn't see it coming. It happened really fast. And the thing about my dad, the thing that made it extra hard, my dad was just like the best guy in the world. I mean, just the best guy you ever met. Just kind and, and humble and quiet and selfless. And, you know, he's always doing something for other people. He never complained. The only thing he would ever complain about, every once in a while, when my mom would leave the room, like on the holidays, he would lean forward and he would look at me and my brother and my sister. And he would make sure she was gone. Here we go. Y'all think we got enough knickknacks in here? <laughs> because my mom's a 75-year-old white lady who lives at the beach, and she loves knickknacks. I mean, just everywhere. It's nice. It's not hoarderish. It's very clean, but it's just seashells and pelicans and lighthouses and sailboats and flip-flops and bird baths. It's live, laugh, love. Dance like no one's watching. You know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of that. And... <laughs> And my dad, I think he probably just sat back in his recliner and looked around the house. It was like $50, $80, $150, That was only a dollar because it was from Ross Dress for last time. $80. You know, he just, he's like, we got $200,000 worth of nonsense in this house. It was the only thing that drove him crazy. He was still a good sport about it, you know. He would kind of nudge me and be like, thank you, got enough items on every surface of the house. <laughs> 
But when my dad passed, my mom set us down and she said, listen, I want to get him a nice urn. So we did, we got him, it is beautiful. Beautiful urn, it's very nautical. It's kind of, it's this blue green, it's got some like burlap kind of rope around and it's got a piece of driftwood on the top of the lid. It's very coastal, and it has little tiny, it's clay, it's a ceramics piece. It has little baby sea turtles going all the way up the urn. Beautiful piece. And we had it sitting on a table in the living room with a sailboat, metal sailboat hanging behind it, and a conch shell to the left of it, and this little palm tree thing to the right of it. He became a knick-knack, is what I'm trying to tell you. And it's like the only thing he didn't want to be, you know, just circle of life. Native North Carolinian and comedian Cliff Cash has appeared on Laughs on Fox. He's opened for comedians Michael Ian Black, Kyle Grooms, Michael Che, Judah Friedlander, Lachlan Patterson. He's also performed on Comedy Central's XM Radio. He's toured 48 of these United States. And he's set to record his own comedy special called The Long Road, presented by Lighthouse Films and Wilmington Unplugged, November 9th, 2023, at Thalian Hall. Cliff Cash, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back with us. It's been a few years. You did your first open mic in 2011. I did. And at that point, you weren't necessarily thinking this was going to turn into a career. No, I think people my whole life were kind of, I was kind of a class clown, sort of, you know, a little bit in trouble sometimes. And uh, so people my whole life were kind of like, you should you should be a comedian. But that sounds very abstract when you, you know, there's no formula. It's not like you go get a comedian degree and, you know. So it was just something I was trying uh, that people kept encouraging me to do it. And so I gave it a shot and I was instantly addicted. And there are certain milestones that you have to pass as a comedian to go to the next level. So open mic is one of them. So your first time out, a lot of people bomb horribly, and they come back, and they get better. How did your first time go? My first time went really well, um, and I think that was because I was so prepared. And, and uh, I had gone the week before, and I had had some beers, and I had begged Timmy Sherrill, who owned Nut Street, <laughs> towards the end of the show, please put me up. I'm, you know, I was feeling funny. I had watched everybody. I, I was like, I got it. I know how it works now. And I was begging him to put me up, and he was like, that's not how it works, buddy. you got to show up early, and you get on the list, and blah, blah. And I'm so grateful that he didn't let me go up because I had nothing prepared and I had drinks in me and I probably would have bombed. And I'm not sure I would have ever tried again. Had had it gone really badly the first time, I'm not sure I would have tried again because it's just, you know, it's kind of the kind of person I am. I I don't like rejection and I I think it would have like, you know, destroyed me if it didn't go good the first time. You said to me that you have this really strong fear, which is, I think, very human. I think all of us do in one way or another, this strong fear of rejection. And yet you have chosen an industry (laughs) where you can be publicly rejected and heckled and all all the things. Why? Why this? And how do you deal with that fear of rejection? How does it show up for you today? Um, So I think... When I started doing stand-up and it started going well, it was almost like this uh, aha moment of like, oh, th- this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, no no wonder nothing made sense until now. 
because it was like, oh, I'm at this sales job where what I do most of the day is make all the other salespeople laugh and draw cartoons and make fun of my coworkers and my bosses and like, you know, I've I had employee or employers tell me like, you know, if you weren't weren't so instrumental to the camaraderie of the place, we probably would have fired you by now because <laughs> I was late and I didn't shave and my hair is sticking up. And uh, and so when I became a comic, it was like my ADD is is no longer an, a liability. It's now an asset that, the, you know, those dark corners of my personality are now a place that I can write from. Uh, it's good that I'm a night owl because I need to be because I'm going to be up late doing this. And it's, you know what I mean? So all those things that had always been liabilities sort of became assets. And I think it, I think it can be that way when you find your thing, you know. Yeah. And I just have to say, we had a few false starts recording this edition <laughs> of Coastline. A lot of it, I mean, to be fair, a lot of it was on us. But you, you kept us laughing and it was sort of really hard to pull it together. But you, so you developed enough material to open for professional comedians. I mean, that was... That was one of the first steps, right, in your yeah. professional career. How much material do you have to have for that, and how do you get that gig? I mean, I think you really want to have 30 minutes. Uh, some clubs might want you to do 20 or 25, but typically if you're featuring for a headliner, you want to, you want to feel comfortable doing 30. Uh, and I'm a verbose person like this. You know, you, you'll probably have to edit this interview because I, <laughs> I give you 10-minute <laughs> answers to every question. Um, but again, that was another like liability that became an asset was that, you know, that the superfluous nature that I have, like in conversation, uh, becomes an asset when you're trying to write a lot of material and, and, and be long winded enough on stage to, to reach those 30 minute limit and the 60 minute limit. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I think I had years of being silly that had never been, um, engineered into anything, anything polished. And so those first couple of years were, were really kind of the easiest because it was like, okay, here's 30 years of stupid stuff that I've been doing and I can like make this into material pretty easily, you know. So what's it like to open then for someone like Michael Che who, you know, people have bought tickets to see Michael Che and then you walk out on stage and talking about a guy who has a strong aversion to rejection. How do you deal with that first kind of obstacle. You know, no one's going to be rude because it's not Michael Che. Audience members know somebody else is going to come out and sure. open. But still, they're there for someone else. How, how do you approach it? Um, you know, your job as a feature comedian is to get the crowd warmed up for the person that's coming up. Uh, and a lot of people in the industry would say your job is to warm them up, but not get them so, uh, you know, so high energetically that the, the headliner has trouble following you know you don't want to like bear they call it burying the headliner um so that's kind of the goal you want them to be like really warmed up and having a good time but not so uh energetic that it's tough to follow um and as far as the rejection rejection element of it i don't take anything to the stage unless i already know it works and so i will like run it by people in conversation if i'm at a get together or a cookout or i'm hanging out with family or friends I'll work it in the conversation, and if it gets a laugh five times in a row organically, I go, okay, that's going to work. And then I'll put that – if I'm doing an hour, I'll sandwich that in between two bits that I know work every time. 
Uh, so there's really like no fear. There's no there's no chance of failure. You know what I mean? So if you do walk off a cliff with that joke, sorry, I did that again. I mean <laughs> to do intended. that. You're listening to Coastline. Leave the comedy to me, Rachel, all right? <laughs> I, I'm trying. To, you're listening to Coastline. My guest today is comedian Cliff Cash. He's set to record his own comedy special, The Long Road, presented by Lighthouse Films and Wilmington Unplugged, November 9th, 2023, at Thalian Hall. So how do you get to the point then where you can headline a show? How much material do you need and how do you get those gigs? Um, you really want to have an hour, you know, and some, again, some clubs might say, Hey, just keep it at 45. We're doing two shows. We want to flip the room quick. Um, but you want to have an hour. You want to feel like if you need to, you can do 60 minutes. Uh, I think for a lot of comedians, I think it takes some comedians five years to get 30 minutes. So it probably takes some, it might take people 10 years to get 60. Everybody's different, but because I'm such a, you know, I have a sort of a hyperactive mind and I have, and I'm superfluous and, you know. Uh, I was able to kind of hit those uh, marks relatively quickly. So the first gig, there's a, a booker called Comedy Zone. They're based in Charlotte. They have like a 400-seat venue there. But they book rooms all over the country. And uh, I sent them a tape. I knew somebody who knew somebody, so it actually got in front of the owner. And he liked it enough that he reached out to me, and they booked me to headline a, a room in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And this is two years into comedy. And I went up, and I, I headlined it, and I did, like, 50 minutes, and it went really well. I mean, I had a blast. I think the crowd had a blast. I had a, a heckler, and I just, like, made the guy the butt of every joke throughout the thing because I couldn't shut him down any other way. Um, probably the best handling I've ever had of a heckler uh, since. And uh, it went really well, and I was so stoked, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm a headliner, and it's only two years in, and now I'm a headliner, and it's just like the sky's the limit from here. And... Uh, the guy, one of the bookers called me like a couple of days later and he was like, how long have you been doing comedy? And I was like, uh, two years. I'm not going to lie to the guy. And he was like, yeah, man, we can't have you headlining. And so it was, it was very obvious that someone called them was like, you know, that guy's only been doing it two years. It wasn't the venue because it went, it went like really well, you know. So someone, uh, someone like snitched. And wow. so then they bumped me back to featuring for um, a couple years. It took me a couple more years to get back to – and I mean, honestly, there were probably nights after that that uh, I was glad I was featuring, you know, where I saw headliners struggle and thought like, yeah, maybe I wasn't quite ready for that. But it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a bummer. Yeah. You're, you've said that your comedy, of course, has evolved over the years. And it took you a little while to get to the point where you could do jokes like the one where you're talking about the passing of your father mm -hmm. and kind of deal with the nuances, the complexity of human emotion, where it's not just laugh, 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 laugh. How do you think about that when you're doing a comedy show? Um, you know, humor, and I think probably for most comedians or a lot of comedians, it's, it's also a coping mechanism uh, in a lot of people's personalities, whether they're stand-up comics or not. Uh, and it has been for me. So, like, if something heavy is happening, it's it's likely that I'll try to make a joke to lighten the mood, you know, to kind of find some levity in things. And if, again, if that gets a big laugh, I'm like, all right, maybe I can write a bit about this, you know? Um, so, I mean, uh, the day that I really sort of found out slash decided that my marriage was over, I had to do an hour of stand-up that night. And it was like, I can't go and talk to these people for an hour without talking about this. So I just went up and I did 
20 minutes about my like impending divorce and uh, I got some hugs after the show, <laughs> but, uh, but it went really well. And, and, um, and I think maybe that was the beginning of it for me. Um, but I, you know, I think it helps me to process things and work through things, but I also know there's people in the audience who might've just lost a parent that week and hearing and seeing someone find the levity in the experience and, uh, and some touching moments too. I try to, I try to, have a balance of both. Uh, people have told me, hey, it really helped me to laugh at that tonight. I just lost my parent two weeks ago. And, it, 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 you know, I appreciate you doing that or you saying that. Um, and when I talk about something like homophobia or transphobia or something like that, I've had people that are members of that community come up to me and say, hey, nobody does that here in this small town that I'm passing through. Nobody even talks about it, let alone uh, in a way that's like, you know, speaking up for equality or whatever. So people saying those things to me, like, is the most meaningful part of what I'm doing. And that's, those are like, those are the things that keep you from giving up. And you've also said that you've learned how to talk about what can be hot button, really controversial issues in a way that allows you to talk to just about any room. It doesn't matter where people are on the political spectrum. How do you navigate that? And what's the key? Um, so, uh, I don't want to overplay that cause I, I will absolutely sort of edit myself if I look out and see like a, a sea of camouflage, you know, there's, there's some things I'm not going to say, no offense to anyone wearing camouflage. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of like dial it back if I think I need to, or if I'm in an audience where I know I can get away with about anything, I won't censor myself. But I'm still going to say what I want to say. I'm still going to try and slip in some kind of message about what I believe and what I think is right. And I think you do that by avoiding this sort of uh, minefield of triggering words. You know, even even the word triggering is triggering now because it's overused and misused so much. But um, there are certain words that are powerful in pop culture and, and media and whatever right now. And I think if you can kind of dance around those words but still talk about the topic itself, it's a lot harder for someone to get mad. So, so if I'm just talking about, say, racism in general and I'm not mentioning people or parties or uh, events, it's hard for somebody to stand up in the back of the room and go, oh, wait just a minute, buddy. I'm a racist and I don't appreciate you saying that. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, whereas if I go and say the key words, it, it almost gives them license to go, hey, you attacked the thing that I am or believe or belong to or identify as. Um, and then, you know, so it it, ta- it took a long time to do that. And it took a lot, you know, just like talking about the heavier things. Um, when you're serious about comedy, at some point you kind of figure out the mechanics of, I know how to get up there for 30 minutes or 60 minutes and make people laugh the whole time. And you kind of, at least for me, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I kind of get that. Not to say that I'm an ace. Not, you never master it all the way. But I got to a point where it was like, what else can I do? You know? Yeah. And, um, and can I say what I want to say without making anybody mad? Because I don't want them to disrupt the show. But I also don't want them to be mad. I want them to come and laugh. That's why they came. You know? And it's my obligation to make them laugh. But if I can make them laugh and make them think, then it's like win-win. You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is comedian Cliff Cash. 
He's set to record his own comedy special, The Long Road, presented by Lighthouse Films and Wilmington Unplugged, November 9th, 2023, at Thalian Hall. And you know, Cliff, I've avoided bringing up your famous brother, Wiley Cash. Never heard of him. (laughs) A lot of... A lot of our listeners will know he's one of this, the um, writer rock stars. We have the rich landscape, a rich sure. literary landscape yeah, really in, in the Cape Fear region. Absolutely. Lots of well-known, very accomplished writers. And he is one of them, New York yeah. Times bestselling author. He's top 100 for sure. <laughs> and he... Uh, he, but he's part of your whole. He's part of this comedy special that you're doing. Absolutely, yeah. he's helped you a little bit in your career, for sure. Or you've helped him. How does that work? I I take most of the credit for all of his books, um, <laughs> but he has come to some shows, which is nice. Uh, I always make him pay. I think that's important. Uh, you need to support the people you love financially. Uh, no, why? You know, seeing so Wiley started that first novel as his. Uh, thesis, I, I guess is the word for his PhD, and it took years to get um, to really get it to to get it to be a book deal, and it w- ended up being a two book deal and sold in a bunch of different countries. But uh, there were a lot of no's along the way before that happened, and I was there for those. You know, we talk on the phone, and he's like, uh, my, you know, I, I I lost my agent, or I, I sent this thing in, and they said no, and um, and you know, he was just like getting by and working hard and and he had this um, goal of, of trying to make a living from doing something that he really loved. And I really admired that. And uh, and to be honest, I don't know how hopeful I was. I mean, I know he's a brilliant guy. I love him. As, you know, I'm his biggest fan. But it, it seems really um, big and it seems really giant to become a New York Times bestselling author. You know what I mean? To me, that sounds like becoming an astronaut. <laughs> and so when he did it, uh, I had, you know, when he got that book deal, I had just started doing open mics and I, it gave me this like um, confidence that, you know, here's somebody that I know really, really well, obviously my brother uh, who has, achieved this goal of really making a decent living from something that he really loves and believes in and his his favorite thing and it made it seem more doable to me and 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 that was like really probably one of the most inspirational moments uh during those first years had that not happened i i might have had less faith that i could do that you know yeah the intro that you're filming to the comedy special starts in the green swamp yeah. So we needed to film uh, the the intro is the the sun is coming up. I'm clearly like camping in my van so when it gets light enough to see you can Which see Which you it. actually do. You oh, all the, the time. you live out of yeah. your van when you're on the road. Yeah, sometimes. and I, and I want this special to be a, a real reflection of like who I am. You know, it's I'm definitely not always in 500 seat theaters. Um but I you know, I wanted to record at Thaling cuz it's a special place and this town is really special to me. But uh, we needed to record in nature as if I'm camping. And the Green Swamp is the, the closest, prettiest place to do that. So, uh, and it's the road that I, that I drive in and out of, you know, because I, I stay on Oak Island when I'm in the area. So when I leave to go on tour for a month, that's the last thing I see is those like 30 miles of Green Swamp and the sun coming through the pines. And 
I always think about how beautiful it is and how I want to kind of like film it and use it somehow. So, so okay. All comedy specials seem to start with the comedian getting into the theater. Mm-hmm. What is that about? What does that mean? I don't know. It's it's pretty rare to have any kind of like clever intro before it. But to me, it's like that. that's the thing that's going to kind of set me apart from the other comics is like, this is me. This is what I really do. I really camp in between. I'm going to be in Blacksburg tomorrow night and then I'm going to camp the next night uh, somewhere up in the mountains in my van. Um, so it's something I really do. And I want I want this to be like personal. I want it to be unique. I want whoever's watching it, hopefully a decision maker at a major platform to go. You know, I like that this guy's like a little bit different. That's the goal with you, right? You want this yeah. comedy special there. It's going to be pitched. But tell us a little bit about the production company doing this, because we're not talking small potatoes here. No, I mean, I think I'm small potatoes uh, to them. <laughs> it's probably the smallest thing they've ever done. And I'm really honored that they're working with me. So Billy Mellon, who owns Wilmington Unplugged and Mana and Bougie Nights and all that stuff, is a good friend of mine. Uh, we became friends from me performing at Bougie Nights, and he uh, became a, a, just a rabid fan. I mean, the guy, he he's I've autographed so much stuff for him. I mean, he calls me 10 times a day. This is all for him. These are jabs. But, uh, <laughs> but he saw me talking about on social media, talking about wanting to record a special at Thalian, and he reached out. He was like, dude. I want to be on board. I want to help make this happen. I'll back you. Like, what What? What can I do to help make it happen? And he had the connection with Lighthouse, um, actually through some nonprofit work that they've done together for, uh, like, veteran uh, mental health, veterans and suicide prevention and stuff. And uh, so he connected me with Lighthouse. Lighthouse is an incredible company. They just finished a project with Kevin Hart, who's probably the biggest comedian in the world. Um and they, you know, they regularly make commercials for whoever, Michelin or, um, you know, Chase Bank. I mean, big, big companies. So they really have the chops to make what we're envisioning. And they have the chops to get it bought, I think, once it's done, which is a really important aspect. I'm trying to get some health insurance really is the main goal of all of this. <laughs> and so, okay, so the goal then is to get this onto a streaming platform. So th- for those folks who aren't at the Thalian Hall filming on November 9th, 2023, they'll probably be able to to watch this somewhere. That's what we're hoping. Fingers crossed. All of them. All right. Well, that is this edition of Coastline. Cliff Cash, thank you so much for being with us today. I've been Uma Kamaraju. Thank you. Don't know what that means. Thanks also to comedian Nancy Witter. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Media. Find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.